0: Matthew chapter 4 is where we're going to be this morning as we talk about how do we begin living into Christian community. So when I was in college, I got to, to be roommates with this guy named Jason Parker. Some of you know Jason and Kim. They're dear friends of mine. Um, Jason and I got to room together for four years all through college. And then the year after I graduated, before Sydney and I got married, he and I got to live together. And some of you that know Jason, you will know that this is the highest compliment possible. Jason is absolutely insane. He is the 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 one of the craziest friends that i've ever had absolutely hilarious. He's one of those guys, like when you're with Jason, you know you're gonna come out of it with a good story. And so it's part of what's kind of kept my preaching going here at Ethos is I I lived with Jason for five years. And so there's just so many stories, so many memories. I remember this one moment, our sophomore year in college, we had moved into the dorm and the room that we were living in, for whatever reason that year, uh, the deadbolt was broken. It had been broken during the summer and maintenance had not fixed it. And so we moved into a room that literally we could not lock when we left, which was uh, kind of a big problem luckily we were poor we didn't have anything that worth stealing but it was just kind of you know disconcerting to leave and not be able to lock your room and so we went into the first couple of weeks and it didn't really matter we didn't really notice anything until about a month into school and we started noticing that slowly but surely um, the food and drinks out of the mini fridge in our dorm would just start disappearing and and this was like treason in the dorm, you know, because we're so poor and we're also hungry because we've been skipping classes and flirting with girls all day. So we needed to be nourished and we'd come home to our refrigerator and there's no food, there's, there's no drink. And so I remember this one night in particular, we came back to the dorm, Jason went to get a drink out of uh, the mini fridge, there was nothing in there. And he just like loses his mind. Like he, and in this, this moment of just rage, he, he made a statement that I, I've remembered all these years. He, he looked at me and he said, Dave, I'll tell you what I'm gonna do. Tomorrow, I'm gonna go to the grocery store and I'm gonna start buying food and drinks that no one would like enough to steal. And I thought, that's a terrible idea because you're gonna have to drink those things as well. But he's like, I'm gonna teach myself how to like them. So sure enough, the next day, he comes back from Kroger and he has this 12 pack of Diet Big K Cola. Now, um, I don't know if uh, you know what Big K Cola is. It's the generic version of Coca-Cola, it's the Kroger brand. And the only thing worse than generic Kroger brand Coke is generic Kroger brand Diet Coke. I mean, it's just... Pure chemicals, worse for you than heroin. I mean, you don't want (laughs) to drink this stuff. But I remember sitting there with him in the dorm room. He'd he'd open up the fridge. He'd get out that Diet Big K. And I remember watching his face. He'd drink it and just cringe like with with every sip. But but something kind of um, unusual began to happen. Over time, he actually got to where he could tolerate it. And then he got to where he, he actually liked it. And it was like this crazy kind of case study in, in the human experience that it is quite possible and actually quite easy to cultivate your taste buds to enjoy lesser pleasures, That something you used to hate, you can eventually tolerate, and something you used to tolerate, you can actually desire and love and crave. And I've I've thought about this so many times because I think especially in a place like Nashville, Tennessee, in the context, we live here in the belt buckle of the Bible belt. It is so easy, if we're not careful, to cultivate the taste buds of our heart for the generic version of what God has made us for. And so instead of experiencing the richness and the depth and the beauty of what Jesus has hardwired our souls to experience, we settle for lesser than versions. And if, at the beginning, we, we may re, be repelled by it, then we tolerate it, and then we, be, we begin to crave it without even realizing it. And I think one of the areas in a place like Nashville where we are most tempted to cultivate the taste buds of our soul for lesser pleasure is in the place of Christian community, I think in a place like Nashville where everything feels kind of Christian, it is tough to know what is actually Christian. In a place like Nashville where you kind of assume everyone is somewhat Christian, it's tough to know what it looks like to live as a community of Christians. And I want to kind of define this phrase for us this morning as we jump into the teaching because I'm going to use this phrase Christian community over and over and over, and I want to make sure that we're all kind of on the same place. When I'm talking about Christian community, I'm not talking about Christian friends, Christian friends can be a part of your Christian community. But there is a big difference between having friends that are Christian and having a community that is committed to the ways of Christ. It is one thing to say, man, I watch football with a bunch of guys that go to church. It is another thing to say, I am in a group of men that are helping me become more and more like Jesus, that are concerned with my holiness, that are concerned with the way that I talk, that are concerned with the ways that I live, that are concerned with the mission that I am or am not currently engaged in. There's a difference between Christian friendship and Christian community. And I think sometimes because we don't discern the difference, we end up training the taste buds of our souls for lesser pleasures, and we end up with something It's not very satisfying. And we wonder why no one from the outside wants anything to do with it. I remember when I moved to Nashville 15 years ago, I was stunned by how easy it was to find a church, but how tough it was to find a community. There are churches on every corner, And yet I found as I would try to engage in those contexts that it was easy to show up and hear a sermon and to give some money and to serve and to do some of those things. But to have a community of people around me who would say, Dave, I want you to live into the ways of Jesus, that was an entirely different ballgame. And without even meaning to, over the years, I started cultivating the taste buds of my soul for a lesser than version of Christian community. And I started saying things like, I just wanna find a church with solid teaching. Or I just wanna find a church with, great worship or I want to find a church that ministers to college students or whatever it is and there's nothing wrong with good teaching and good worship and good ministry but the problem is if that is what your soul is chasing after your soul will lead you to the generic version of what God has made you for and over the next five or six weeks we're going to talk about what does it look like what does it mean to be anchored in the type of community that Jesus gave his life for and raised from the dead for and how can we begin recalibrating the taste buds of our heart to crave the very thing that God has made us for. So this morning we're gonna jump into Matthew chapter four and I want us to look at two non-negotiables, two like foundational elements that I believe every Christian community needs if it's actually gonna be a Christian community. We're gonna do that by coming out of Matthew chapter four. The the cliff notes of the story are Jesus at this point in the story is about 30 years old He's been baptized, he has uh, been tempted in the desert for 40 days, he has begun his itinerant ministry traveling around preaching uh, to those who don't yet know about the goodness of the kingdom of God. And so here in Matthew chapter four, he's gonna begin assembling the very first Christian community. If you grew up in church, a lot of times when we think of the first Christian community, we think of Acts chapter two, but I would argue that the the first Christian community is the one that Jesus built around himself when he started taking men and women who did not yet know him and inviting them into a covenant relationship with him and with each other. And so I want us to look at some of these non-negotiables that begin to come to the surface. Matthew chapter four, we're gonna start in verse 18. Are you with me this morning, you here? You doing well? Okay, verse 18, it starts like this. It says, as Jesus was walking beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who is also called Peter, and his brother Andrew. And they were casting a net into the lake because they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, come follow me, and I will send you out to fish for people. Or some of your Bibles say, come follow me, and I will make you into fishers of people. And at once, they left their nets and followed Jesus. Going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and his brother John. They were in a boat with their father Zebedee preparing the nets and Jesus called out to them as well. And immediately they left their boat and their father and they followed Jesus. This is the word of God out of Matthew chapter four. Now it's kind of, let's just admit for a second, this is an unusual picture of community. It's not typically kind of the starting point when we think about what does it mean to live in Christian community. But I would argue that there are two non-negotiable things that are unfolding in this story that are kind of the right and left hand of Christian community as we're trying to walk with Jesus. And the first, if you're taking notes, the first thing I want you to notice is this element of grace. The first kind of non-negotiable in the context of Christian community is, is grace. Now, I don't know if you grew up in church or not. I don't know what you think of when you hear that word grace. I think a lot of times we, we take the word grace and we make it synonymous with forgiveness or we make grace synonymous with mercy. So we'll say things like, hey, I just really screwed things up and I need your grace. And that is a correct way to use grace. Grace certainly encompasses forgiveness. Grace certainly encompasses mercy. But grace is so much bigger. It is so much more beautiful and robust than simply forgiveness or mercy. Grace is the inexhaustible, incomparable, undeserved kindness of God extended towards ordinary people like you and I who cannot earn it, who do not deserve it, and who cannot repay it. Grace is the inexhaustible, incomparable, undeserved kindness of God showed towards ordinary people who don't deserve it, can't earn it, can't repay it. It is just the kindness of God invading the life of human beings. And what you begin to see here in Matthew chapter 4 is that this community is being formed, not because these guys are solid believers, not because they're devoted to the synagogue, not because they're really nice, really good businessmen, but that this community is being founded upon the grace of Jesus and the grace of Jesus alone. I remember as a kid, I would read this story, and it was like so perplexing to me because I thought, who in the world would be in the midst of their job and see some random guy walking down the beach, and he tells them, hey, leave everything, come follow me, and who would do that? And I don't know if you ever thought about this before, but sometimes when you just read the scriptures, the, the first disciples seem like the most irresponsible, flaky human beings on planet Earth. But the Bible gives us this picture, this understanding of the disciples' relationship with Jesus far before this moment happens in Matthew chapter 4. Did you realize that Peter and Andrew and James and John had actually had a lot of significant encounters with Jesus before he ever calls them to leave their jobs? I think sometimes when you're reading the Bible, it just seems like one event after another and and you don't get a timeline. Some scholars actually believe by the time you get to Matthew chapter 4, Jesus had been preaching in Peter's hometown for almost a year at that point. But you read some of the other places of the scripture and you realize there is this relationship unfolding. John chapter one tells us that Andrew was one of the first guys to really see Jesus as he was. Andrew had heard Jesus preach. He had seen Jesus heal the sick. And one day it says that Jesus is getting ready to go on to another village to preach there. And Andrew says, hey, Jesus, where are you going? And Andrew says, Hey, come and seek. Like, come hang out with me. I want you to see where it is that I'm going. And John tells us that long before this moment in Matthew chapter 4 ever happened, Andrew went and spent an entire day hanging out with Jesus. And when he comes back, he sees his brother, he sees his friends, and he says, You will never believe this. I think I just found the Messiah. I've seen a man who is unlike any other man, he is different. Or Luke tells us about Peter's backstory that Peter had heard the teaching, the preaching of Jesus. Uh, He had been encountered and impacted by Jesus. In fact, one day Jesus showed up at Peter's house. Peter's mother-in-law was sick. This was long before Peter had left everything to follow Jesus. Jesus shows up at Peter's house and he heals his mother-in-law right there on Peter's couch. Hung out, sat there in the room with them. Peter had had some encounters with Jesus before Jesus just walks on the shore. And so this is, this is not a moment where a stranger is walking down the beach and says, hey, do you want to leave everything? Come follow me. It's a moment where they realized the one who was extending the invitation was better than them in every way. His power, his preaching, his presence was a, was a picture of God in ways that no one or nothing else had ever been. And so when Jesus extended the invitation, they said, Man, we want to be a part of that. And they understood at the core of who they were that what got them out of the boat into the friend group of Jesus was not their religiosity, was not their morality, was not their diligence. It was Jesus' grace. Can you imagine what it would have been like all those years later as the disciples are sitting around talking? They're like, Man, do you remember the day Jesus showed up at our boat? Like, he came, he said, Hey, we leave everything. Don't you know that sometimes they sat around talking like I wonder why he stopped at our boat. Like I wonder why he came to us. And don't you know they had to know that it wasn't because of their small business skills or their charisma or their spiritual fortitude or the home that they grew up up in. Peter knew that the only reason Jesus stopped at his boat and invited men was because of grace. And the only reason he could come back into the family of God would be grace. Peter and all of the disciples in the years ahead would sacrifice and forfeit their relationship with Jesus time and time again. They'd do things that they never thought they would do. And the thing that would keep bringing them back in, the thing that would keep bringing them home, would be the undeserved, inexhaustible, incomparable kindness of God. They remembered that what called them out of the boat in the first place was the only thing that could bring them home when they had screwed everything up. And I want you to hear this because I'm gonna say this with so much love. Some of you will not believe me until you shipwreck your life. But when you shipwreck your life, maybe these words will come back to you is until your heart has been pierced by and saturated with the grace of Jesus, you will never be able to fully contribute to Christian community the way that you're meant to. Because without grace, these things begin to creep into our mind. We start to think, man, I deserve to be here. And all of a sudden we start living with pride and entitlement We start living with that sense of like, man, I belong to be here. I should be here. Or even worse, like we sin and screw up and we start living with this sense of self-hatred. Have you ever done something that you never thought you would do and all of a sudden you just keep dogging yourself because somewhere in the core of your heart, you believe that what got you into this community was your goodness. And until the grace of Jesus washes away your sense of self-righteousness, you will never experience the fullness of God's community. That it's grace and grace and grace and grace and grace alone that allows us to be in this room. I want you to just look around for a minute. Literally, look around. I want you to see the face in the room. Every human being in this room is a person that's been invited by the grace of Jesus into this place. Thought about how powerful it would be if we had our welcome team stand on the porch every week and as you come in, they're like, hey, welcome to Ethos. You're a mess, a loser. You don't deserve to be here. But because of Jesus, because of grace you sitting in this room is an admission or a proclamation of grace and that where there is no grace, there is no Christian community. There is just counterfeit community where strangers sit in rooms and hear sermons and sing songs and leave thinking that somehow their morality bought the way in. And I love the place the first community begins. It begins, it's built on the back of Jesus's grace. But it's not just about grace, there's a second kind of non-negotiable I want you to notice, and it's this picture of commitment. It's a picture of commitment. Now I think as human beings we tend to to be predisposed to kind of one side of this or the other. We tend to love grace or we love commitment. Like we love the kindness of God or we love to roll up your sleeves and sell all your possessions and follow Jesus wherever he goes. We, we tend to love one or the other but I would argue that Christian community is a collision of both of these things. That whenever there's commitment without grace, what you have is cold legalism. But whenever you have grace without commitment, what you have is Christian Laziness. And that you end up missing what it is that God has made us for. But when the two come together, there's this unfolding kind of epic community of God's kindness. And so I want you to notice this in the story of Matthew chapter 4. I think there's actually kind of three levels of commitment that are unfolding here. And each one of them is important. The first is this commitment from Jesus to his disciples. The second is their commitment from the disciples to Jesus. And the third layer is uh, the disciples' commitment to one another. And so you see all of these levels of commitment from Jesus to them, from them to Jesus, from them to each other. And any Christian community that is actually a Christian community rooted in grace will, will um, develop and will reveal all these layers of commitment. I want you to notice kind of the first picture is this commitment, this picture of Jesus' commitment to the disciples. I don't know if we, we typically talk about this when we read Matthew chapter 4. But this is one of the most epic pictures of commitment from God to us that that you see in all of the scriptures. Jesus looks at him and he says, hey, come and follow me and I'm gonna make you into fishers of people. In other words, come as you are and allow me to bear the responsibility of transforming you into all that you are not. During the, the time that this story unfolded 2,000 years ago, there were no retirement plans, no 401ks, no saving accounts. You would work for a day, get paid for a day. So in other words, if you worked that day, you ate that day. And Jesus is gonna call them to this unbelievable sacrifice. He says, I want you to let go of everything that brings you security and comfort. Your family, your future, your finances, leave everything on the table because what I'm committing to you as your Lord, what I'm committing to you as your leader is I want to bear all the weight of responsibility in your life. I want to bear the responsibility of your future. I want to bear the responsibility for your family. I want to bear the responsibility for your finances. Let me take all of these things. Come into relationship with me as you are. Let me make you into all that you're not. I love this picture of commitment. It's what Jesus is going to say over and over. Do you remember the Sermon on the Mount where he's talking to his followers? And and they're worried just about the pressures of life. How do we balance the pressures of life and a true commitment to you, Jesus? And Jesus looks at him and he says, don't worry about where you're gonna live, what you're gonna eat, the clothes you're gonna wear. He says, non-Christians worry about those things. And that's a convicting teaching to me because I go, I'll worry about that stuff all the time. And Jesus says, I'm telling you, seek first my kingdom and my righteousness and all these things will be added to you. Clothes, house, everything you need. I, I wanna take responsibility for it. And I say this in love, but those words of Jesus, seek first my kingdom, my righteousness, and everything else will come to you. Those are words that we tend to agree with in church, but words that we do not align our lives around. Most of us do not believe that teaching of Jesus. We like that teaching of Jesus, but we don't believe it because we've yet to align our lives around it. And Jesus looks at the disciples. He says, let me show you my level of commitment to you. Come, Come follow me, and I will bear the weight of responsibility for the entirety of your life. And I love that first level of commitment from him to them because it's the only thing that makes sense of the second layer, and that is their commitment to Jesus. Only in a world where you know how deeply committed Jesus is to you will you have the courage to return that sense of commitment to him. There is no amount of religious discipline that can wiggle the worry out of your heart until you see the undying, unbelievable commitment of Jesus to you. It's only when we've seen what he has first committed to us that we have the ability to do what they do, where, hey, leave the nets, leave the boats, leave the... Like, like I can do it. I can do it. And you see this kind of unlayering of commitment from Jesus to them, from them to Jesus, and then you keep reading in the Gospels, and you begin to realize that it's not just a commitment between them and Jesus. All of a sudden, it's a commitment between them and one another these people who were complete strangers before they came in contact with Jesus. Because the truth is in the kingdom of God, there's no such thing as an only child in the kingdom of God. When you're saved by the grace of Jesus, when you're born into the family of Jesus, you don't just get Jesus, but you get everyone else that he's calling into relationship with himself as well. So it's like when my boys were born, they didn't just come into the world and get a relationship with me and my wife, they got a relationship with me and my wife and their brothers and their cousins, and their aunts and uncles, and so it's impossible, it is fundamentally impossible to be a follower of Jesus and to not be in relationship with other followers of Jesus. Now let me just apologize on behalf of the family of Jesus. We're kinda crazy. And so when you come to the Lord, you get all of us and the good news and the bad news is you're a part of the problem and I'm a part of the problem and the reason our family is crazy is because you're in it and because I'm in it. But this is the grace of Jesus. And all of a sudden you see this unfolding in the life of these early disciples. You get to Luke chapter eight way before the cross, way before the resurrection, way before the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. And you get this picture of a group of people that are already sharing their possessions and sharing their burdens and praying for each other and serving each other because they knew that to be born into the community of Jesus, they didn't just get Jesus, but they got each other. When Peter stepped out of the boat that day, he didn't just get Jesus, but he also got Andrew. And he didn't just get Andrew, but he got James and John. And then a few chapters later, he's gonna get Matthew and Thomas and Zacchaeus and Judas, they didn't want Judas, but they're going to get Judas. And then they're going to get Mary and they're going to get the whole family of God when they find themselves stepping into relationship with Jesus. And I want you to hear this because it's so important that a community built on grace but weak in commitment is not a clear reflection of who it is that God's made us to be. And a community anchored in commitment but weak on grace will never reflect the heart of the God that has called us into. But when those two things come together, man, this picture of Jesus is unstoppable. You know, one of the things that I've said if you've been around Ethos, you've maybe heard me say this before. But I I really want you to hear me because I think I'm getting ready to say something that's kind of hard. And the truth is, hard words spoken in love produce soft hearts. Soft words tend to produce hard hearts. And so I think sometimes my temptation is I wanna just stand up here and say things that'll make you feel good, that'll make you like me, that'll make you like each other. But, but this is kind of a hard word, but I think it's an important word that is so, so clear and so true in the scriptures. And here it is. It is impossible to experience the fullness. That's a key word. It's impossible to experience the fullness of Christian community whenever the people in that community are only partially committed to Jesus Christ. Before you tweet it, think about it. Seriously, seriously. It is impossible to experience the fullness of Christian community when the people within that community are only partially committed to Jesus Christ. I think this is one of the big lies that we tend to buy in Nashville. It's the generic diet soda that we're drinking. It is, this, it is this thought process that my partial commitment to Jesus will bear fruit to the fullness of God's community and that I can have the fullness of God's community without fully committing to Jesus. And so over and over, Sydney and I will be at our house and people come over and the, this is the same conversation we have over and over and over. I need community. I want more community. And, and we totally agree with them. We all need more community. It is possible to be a Christian by yourself. It is impossible, impossible to be a mature Christian by yourself. That's what the Bible says. That you can be saved on your own, but you cannot grow into the fullness of that salvation by running this journey alone. And so people come to us and say, man, we need community. We say, I agree with you. But in almost every case, the the, the real challenge is not their lack of community. It's actually their lack of commitment. Because where there is a, uh, when, when there's an undivided commitment to Jesus, what you inevitably will find is an unbelievably deep community of people who are committed to Jesus and to you. Partial commitment to Jesus will never give birth to the fullness of Christian community. I remember seeing this when Sydney and I were in Portugal a few weeks ago. We were working with church planners and one night we got to go to a soccer game they call it football there, Um, but went to this soccer game and I'd never been to a European soccer game. It was like the craziest sporting event I've ever went to. You know, we're like lining up to get into the stadium and uh, fans of the team that we're there to watch were throwing beer bottles at fans of the opposing team. I'm like, this is a pretty epic, you know, way to start a game. I have to tell my wife, Sydney, quit throwing beer bottles. We're just visiting here and... uh, it's just this kind of like epic moment. We get into the stadium and just spontaneously, the people in the crowd would like burst out singing songs. Things would happen. Strangers are hugging each other, talking. Everyone kisses in Portugal. So they're doing this like little sideway kiss thing. It's kind of crazy and weird. But there was this sense of community that was just Unbelievable. I started learning about this community in the midst of the soccer game. I'm asking all of these crazy European soccer hooligans, like, tell me about this. And they're like, yeah, we, we've, we've been following this team for as long as we can remember. When you're a kid, you start giving money to the soccer club here in Portugal in hopes that the team will develop. I'm like, so you tithe? To, yeah, we tithe to, 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 to the soccer team. It's kind of their religious experience. They're like, when kids are little and they start training for the team, we're like watching them and, 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 and hoping that they'll grow into the best player for our country. And we, we track with this. I'm like, this is, this is an insane experience. And I had this epiphany in the midst of that beautiful communal moment with 60,000 people watching the soccer game. I realized that no matter how much I was enjoying the game, I would never be a part of that community. And the reason I would never experience the fullness of that community was because I was only partially committed to the thing that they loved. And the truth is, a lot of us, a lot of you, I say this with love, a lot of you are only partially committed to Jesus Christ at best. And we can't figure out why our generic version of diet soda Christian community is so unsatisfying. And there's this collision that happens in Matthew 4. Of grace and commitment, of grace and commitment. And as those two things collide, boom, God does what only He can do. You know, so one of the things we've been saying. Uh, for the last five or six weeks, is we don't just wanna talk about these things, we wanna figure out how to practice it. You know, Jesus says in Matthew chapter seven, if you just hear my words and you don't try to live them out, it's not gonna do you any good. Or James chapter one, don't just hear the word of God and deceive yourselves, but put it into practice. So this morning, I don't want us to just talk about grace and commitment. I want us to think about how do we begin practicing Lives that are marked by grace and commitment towards Jesus and each other this week. And so I encourage you to write this down on the blog this week, ethoschurch.org, forward slash blog. I wrote a blog uh, yesterday called Practicing Community. Practicing Community. And one of the things that I try to do is just give you several tangible things to practice as we try to lean into both grace and community. Because the reality is a community is only the sum of its individual parts, right? And so some of you are going, man, we don't have the community that we want. And I just wanna ask you, who you are when you're not here is adding to or taking away from the community that you desire when we're here. And so I've kinda given us some exercises to try this week. The first is actually an exercise in solitude as we think about practicing grace and, 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 uh, and commitment. And I know it's weird to think about, we're talking about community and for us to start in a place of solitude, but I want to challenge you on Monday and Tuesday of this week to go on the blog, and I've given you four or five questions. You can uh, get your journals out, you can get your Bibles out, and to just spend a couple of hours with the Lord on Monday and Tuesday wrestling with some of those questions about grace and commitment. To really let God have his way in your heart and in your soul, because who we are together is a reflection of who we are when we're apart. So some of the questions, I'll just give you one about grace. I'm gonna challenge you this week to sit down and to just go through and list out in great detail. When is a moment when you needed the grace of Jesus? When did you need it? When did you experience it? And so there's some questions about grace and commitment. So kind of the first challenge this week is to get online, ethoschurch.org, go to the blog, and to spend some time living into some of those practices of solitude. But the second piece is something that I wanna challenge us to do in community. And maybe this is with your house church, maybe this is with your neighbors, your friends, your sweet mates, whoever it is. But I wanna, I wanna challenge you, go online. There's several things that, that you can practice this week as you're trying to live in both grace and commitment to those that are around you. I think about the way that I experienced grace and community when I was in college. Uh, I was 18 or 19 years old. I showed up at a great church here in Nashville and there was a couple in their early 30s. At the time, I thought they were like senior citizens. I thought they were so old, but they're in their early 30s, had two small kids. And I remember this one Sunday after visiting the church, they weren't on staff there. They just tapped me on the shoulder and said, hey, would you and your girlfriend come over to our house? Would you uh, eat lunch with us? You can do laundry at our place. You can hang out. Their names are Stan and Leanne Smith. And for the next four years, it became this practice where on Sundays after church, we just go over to their house and hang. And I had no idea what a picture of grace that was. What a picture of God's undeserved kindness it was to a couple of college students for this couple on their one day off to open up their home, to bring us in, to feed us like kings, to love us and to serve us and share their family. I go, can you imagine what it would be like this week if every person in our church, some 3,000 people just said, this is gonna be the week where we're gonna become undercover agents of grace. We're gonna show the kindness of God to people who can never repay it. I'm not talking about uh, random acts of kindness. I'm talking about divine acts of kindness. And what if it became just your your joy this week to go, man, how how do we display grace to those in this room and those beyond this room? There's some things I'm gonna challenge you to do in regards to commitment. Some of you have a lot of friends that are Christian, but your Christian friends are not helping you live into the community that God's made you for. Some of you have... Christian friends that you watch football with every weekend, but those guys never sit down and ask you the hard questions of your heart. Some of you have lots of friends that go to church, but you don't have any friends that will step up and say, hey, what does it look like for us to live lives of holiness together? So I wanna challenge you this week. Like When you're sitting there just crushing that $8 salad bar at Ruby Tuesdays with your best friends, I want you to just challenge them. And look at them in the eyes and say, listen, we were made for more than this. Ethos, I say this with so much love, like I just want to spike my Bible, it gets me so excited. (laughs) We are settling for counterfeit Christianity. Every time we come into this room, consume a sermon, sing some songs, and leave as strangers. Only you get to choose if there'll be more. Only you get to decide if this will be a place marked by grace and commitment. Only you get to decide, will you keep committing yourself to the people in this room even when they choose not to commit themselves to you? It's, what, it's the way the kingdom of God works and it's the way that Jesus is displayed. And the reason we get to do this is because Jesus gave us his grace and his commitment first. Those of you that are not Christians, man, you are so welcome here just as you are. Not because we're kind, not because we're open, not because we're wonderful, but because Christ Jesus and his grace and his commitment to you has done everything that needs to be done so that you can come into the community. And our prayer is that we will somehow reflect those two truths to you. And when we do that poorly, will you have grace towards us? Because we're people in process and we're learning. So let let me pray over you. Let's stand together as we get ready to take communion. And I just wanna pray a prayer of blessing over us as we go to the communion table, as we take the bread and as we take the cup. With the people that you're with, let's spend some time this morning talking about when have you experienced the grace and the commitment of Jesus towards you? When have you experienced the grace and the commitment of someone that you love? When have you felt that? And let's talk about that in the context of community. Father, thank you for these men and women. Thank you for allowing us to be here together. God, in your kindness, would you keep us from settling for something less than what you've made us for? God, I pray that your grace and your commitment would be the thing that would draw us towards you and towards one another. God, protect us from legalism, protect us from just the fear that comes with trying to do this in our own strength. God, if I said anything this morning that was not from you, would you forgive me of that? And would you help us to instantly forget it? And God, if I said something this morning that was of, of you, God, would you just please bury it into our hearts and help us to live it out so that we bear good fruit. In the name of Jesus, we pray. And together, God's people say, amen.